You're listening to the Author Stories Podcast. Bringing you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Margaret Wise, Sherry Brooks, Sheena Kamal, Matthew Quick, J.T. Ellison, Walt D. Williams, Brad Ford, Corey, Dr. O, Brandon Sanderson, Robin Mom, Ernest Klein, Jim Butcher, Sherwin Harris. Visit HankGarner.com for archives of all the shows. Today's guest is... Well, thanks for joining me again for the Author Stories Podcast, where I bring you the story behind the stories and the storytellers. Today, I'm really excited to have Emma Brody on the show with me. She has an amazing new book. It just came out a day or two ago. It's called Songs in Ursa Major, and what a fantastic book. Uh, you know, if you are looking for something to read to get you through those summer doldrums and uh, to... to you know, uh, let you enjoy life a little bit more through someone else's eyes. Uh, Songs in Ursa Major is a fantastic book to have with you this summer. Uh, welcome to the show, Emma. Oh, thank you so much, Hank. I'm so happy to be here. And thank you so much for your enthusiasm. That means the world. Oh, you are so welcome. And it is uh, heartfelt and true. Uh, Emma, we begin each show uh, with the same question. And that question is, what is your first memory? of wanting to be a writer or storyteller? I guess my first memory would be pre-K. I can remember being a little kid living in my parents' apartment in New York, um, scribbling with this really cool pencil my mom had. It was white with silver stars and had a ball where the eraser should be. And I wasn't really writing anything. I was just scribbling, but I was performing the act of writing. And I think that's probably the first time I remember thinking like, I'm a writer, I'm going to be a writer. <laughs> so young. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. It, it, it's funny how, um, you know, this, this desire just, it seems to be kind of innate in in some people like, like there was just never any, any doubt. Um, and, and I wonder if people that are, uh, you know, other forms of artists or, you know, people that are really great carpenters or architects <laughs> or something, you know, do they have that same draw and pull on them from it? And I, I don't it's know if there's an answer to that, but you know, I, I just wonder. Um, did so, you know, having that desire at an early age, um, did you know, were you a bookish kid? Did you know, were you one of those girls that walked around with her nose in a book all the time? Honestly, I wasn't. Um, I love stories and I've always loved stories. And I think a lot of where my desire to write comes from is a desire to internalize memories and explain the world to myself and make sense of it and then. I like to commune creatively. I like to bring people into that world. So I'm pretty social for a writer. Um, I'm, I'm, I mean, I should rephrase that. Like I'm very introverted to be honest, but at the same time, I like to be in environments with other people where I can engage them into my world. Like I have two younger siblings and I've always like invoked them into play and into into creating these different stories. So as a kid, I was read to a lot. I was very fortunate. My mom read to me every day until a very advanced age. I don't want to admit to. Um, but I, I, I guess it's, it's a combination of I like listening to stories. I had a lot of teachers read to me as well. And then I like to make them up and I like to enact them. So there's always been a sort of theatrical element to my create creativity. And yeah, I, I was able to absorb a lot of books 
through osmosis as a kid, but I didn't start to become a quiet reader until I was older. You know, when you when you talk to someone and, and ask for uh, advice on becoming a writer, a lot of people will regurgitate the uh, the, the oft uh, given advice. And it's good advice. Don't get me wrong that, um, you know, to be a writer, you need to read a lot and then you need to write a lot. You know, you need to understand how writing works and then practice it. Um, but I like to add a third caveat to that. And I think it's important to listen to people and to listen to conversation um, because that that's where the mimicking of dialogue and all of that stuff comes from. Um, do you feel like that that plays into your love of spoken reading and, and having uh, people tell stories to you and, and the way that you would, you know, gather your, your siblings in and, and, and that sort of thing. Absolutely. And I love that. I love that advice. I think that's so true. I think dialogue particularly is a learned art, but so is pacing. And I think that having, you know, a lot of medicinal writing, a lot of writing that heals comes from oral traditions. And we have these stories, every sto- every society has myths that are passed down um, by spoken word. And I think that keeping that close, even when you are transitioning into a written form is key. I think there are things that you can only pick up by listening. And um, I wrote this book about music and a lot of what comes out in the story is that my character has a very strong ear, but she can't really read music when the book begins. And I think that can be a metaphor for the creative process of writing books. Like you might not necessarily have, I mean, you have to read a lot, you have to write a lot. And there are a lot of things that you can't pick up in terms of form and function without that practice. But I also think there's a natural ability as a storyteller and some of the best writers and the best storytellers I've ever read did not come out of an academic tradition or even, you know, a a literary tradition. (laughs) I think there are a lot of, a lot of amazing gifted storytellers where it's rooted in dialogue and in spoken word. Your, your new book um, that you just alluded to songs in Ursa major, uh, you, you, uh, you talked about writing a book about music. Um, What is your history with music? Or or do you, do you play the, are you a singer? What, what is your connection with this form of expression? I have had music in my life since before I was born, actually. My mom is an opera singer, so I was getting blasted in utero. <laughs> um, <laughs> and and it's been a real gift my whole life. Like, I never... I've, I've had friends throughout various things. I've, I've tried many different approaches to music, um, sort of the way that a person who's enthusiastic about food tries lots of different foods. I've never really wanted to be a chef or a musical performer, but I've always felt really comfortable in the world, which is just a gift that I was given by my mom. Um, I've always had a fair amount of fluency in terms of understanding composition and the various like other arts that can spin off of music. And I played violin when I was a child. I wasn't, I don't think I was particularly good. My mom thinks I was, but I think that's a mom thing. Um, And then in college, I was in an acapella group, which was so much fun. And that definitely taught me the dynamics of being in a band. Cause when you're in an acapella group, you're in like four bands at once, basically. (laughs) Um, 
but yeah, I've always dabbled and I've always listened and I love being around musicians and performers. So that's, I think they just feel like home to me because my mom and my brother are both amazing musicians. So I love to ask this question to people that have dabbled in other, uh, especially performance arts. And we don't normally think of writing as a performance art, um, but you could make that argument, I guess. Um, how do you feel like uh, being involved with music, either as a musician or being in a musical family where, you know, this is sort of the language that's spoken around you? How do you think that that uh, manifest itself, uh, in your writing? Do, do you feel like that, that, that other form of, uh, artistic expression seeps into what you do as a writer? Definitely. I mean, I think there's a certain crossover between lyricism and poetry that's just evident in the forms. Um, and then I also think that music writing and writing are, you know, sides of the same coin it's interesting like I think there are arts that are sort of perilous and I think that anything performative is is like that right like if you are singing a song you can't take back a note if you're painting a painting you can't take back a brush stroke and writing is not that way like we have a lot of time in private with our creations to make them what we want but I think where they they kind of diverge is that at the end of the day, all art needs to be experienced by other people. Or I guess it doesn't need to be, but most art is created with the intention of being received by other people. And at that point, it's no longer up to you, whether you're singing a song or you're writing a novel, like you have to give up control and surrender eventually. <laughs> and so I think that is a similarity, whether you're in an auditorium full of listeners or you're you know, writing for a single reader alone in their bedroom, at a certain point, it's up to the person who's receiving it to make a call about what it says and, and what it does for them. And so I think that's sort of the uniting factor at the end of the day. You have uh, you have worked in publishing for quite a while now, uh, even though Songs and Ursa Major is your debut novel, you have worked on the editorial side for quite a while now. Um was the did did you know that this was the path that you were going to take like in, in high school and college did did you were you working toward uh, a, a job in in publishing or you know did it just come about by happenstance such an interesting question um i definitely was i think at a certain point i became very aware of what needed to go into writing a book like my my dream has always been to be a novelist and I've actually been pretty open about that for an editor. Most people have a novel or two under their desks within book publishing, but it's kind of hush-hush. And I've always been really open about it um, <laughs> because I I like to be open about who I am at work. You're just there so much. <laughs> right. And then also um, it's created a lot of opportunities for me to do collaborations that aren't available to most editors. Like I had a job for five years where I was kind of a writer in residence and I created a bunch of games and gift books and journals. And I was able to, you know, have these experiences at a really high level 
and sort of test the waters and see what it was like before actually really like putting my name on something and going out there. So it was a little bit of creative training wheels in that way. And that would never have been possible if I hadn't been open about it. But no, I, I knew early on that I wanted to get a foot in the door into the business because I wanted to be a part of this world and I wanted to understand what would go into it, not only as a creator, but as a partner who was going to work with editorial and be someone who was going to be a part of the business. And I think that's something that a lot of writers should think about. I, I read a lot of a lot of new writers who are working on their craft. And I think there are a lot of things that are coming out that are in need of a sort of, can I, can we cut this? I'm sort of like going off. Sure. The tangent. <laughs> Sorry. Sure. No, I have okay. a lot to say about this subject. So it's very easy for me to like go afield. Um, all right. What would I say? I would say that, yes, I was aware of wanting to go into editorial because I thought it would help me have a better chance as a novelist. And I ended up staying there because I found out that I really like working on these projects and I love working with creators. And the part of editorial that I'm in is very art-based. I do a lot of gift books. So it's like adult illustrated publishing, basically. And I love working with artists. So it's been a wonderful marriage where I get to learn from my authors and it doesn't really impact what I do creatively, which is fiction. So it's been a really happy, happy discovery for me and a privilege to get to work on these books. Looking for a tool to help you visualize your story before the drafting begins? PlotPens is cloud-based and optimized for any device there's nothing to download. From the new writer who isn't sure how to tell their story to the veteran who can increase their productivity dramatically, we've had experienced writers lay out a detailed structure for several novels in a series in a matter of a few days. The app takes you through four steps of the process, the concept or logline. Make sure you have a solid concept that you can keep coming back to throughout the process. The outline, 12 beats and three acts, each has a description of what should be happening with examples. The board, 40 cards. We take the 12 beats and add sub-beats to those, breaking it down even further and being very specific about what should go into each. These also have examples and descriptions. Right. We take those 40 cards and turn them into a to-do list. For a 50,000 word book, it's about two cards per chapter roughly. We have a beautiful editor built into the app. You can export your manuscript to a PDF anytime with the click of a button. Let PlotPens help you visualize your writing project. Use code HANK10 to get 10% off PlotPens. PlotPens.com Authors, I have a fantastic new service to tell you about. It's called PubSite. PubSite is a service to help you build your very own website, your home on the web, where you can promote your work and give your fans a place to connect with you. PubSite is a website platform that allows every author, regardless of budget, to have a great-looking professional website developed by the book marketing professionals at FSB Associates. PubSite is the new easy-to-use DIY website builder developed specifically for books and authors. Whether you're an author of one book or 20, or a small publisher, PubSite allows you to build, design, and most importantly, update your website 
pain-free. No need to be dependent on a designer or webmaster to make a small but costly change to your website. Save the money and do it yourself. PubSite is the best platform for authors because it's a book-centric platform. PubSite was built just for authors and small publishers. Every design, feature, and layout is book-centric. They have customized designs for you to use. It's easy to build. No coding or HTML is necessary to create a stunning, professional-looking website with all the features you want. Get a custom domain name, yourname.com. It's simple to update. You can add all of your books, add a blog and a book tour, sell from any retailer, manage your email list and social media, and even do e-commerce. Build your website with a 14-day free trial, then pay just $19.99 per month, which includes hosting, and we offer packages starting at $499 to set up the website for you. Pub-Site.com, the place to help authors find their home on the web. So over the um, you know the the six or seven years that we've been doing this podcast, I've, I've gotten to meet a lot of writers who also have spent time uh, on the editorial side, the 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 other side of publishing, and a, a few of them have uh, have been like, you know, when when they first got into the the business into the industry, it was a little bit like looking behind the curtain. And and seeing Oz, uh, you know, back there, and, and it kind of stole some of the magic of publishing for them. Uh, and then other people I've talked to have been uh, very much uh, of the mind of, uh, you know, I knew exactly uh, what I was going into, and I wanted to learn the business from both sides, and it, you know, definitely didn't look at it as if the the magic had been stolen from them, but looked at it, uh, you know, as uh, this is a way for me to understand the industry and to uh, help me make my mark on the industry. Did, was there any uh, of that for you that, you know, kind of the pulling back the curtain and seeing things that, that you wish you wouldn't have seen? I, I was ready to know the dirt. Um, there was definitely part of me that was hoping to find a magical workshop full of elves making beautiful books and it's definitely an office there are definitely cubicles it's definitely quiet but I had the good fortune to work in a few places that were just absolutely excellent and I remember I remember when I started at Clarkson Potter which is like the premier illustrated imprint in the industry um, just thinking like this should be a show like this place should be West Wing like it was all these really powerful women and they were just all tastemakers and the the excellence with which they did their jobs. Um, I also had, you know, more than your usual amount of characters in the sense that illustrated publishing requires a lot more than traditional trade publishing um, in terms of the back-end conversations on production and design. So I had a steeper learning curve than a lot of editors, but it also made the world really vibrant and exciting. And I think a lot of a lot of young editors struggle because they don't really get to work on manuscripts. And when you're working in Illustrated, it's all hands on deck from day one. Like I acquired as an assistant. So it's I I had a really wonderful experience with it. Um and I wanted to know the dysfunction. <laughs> That's just my personality. So I, I, I definitely embraced that. 
Um, and I think there are things that have been hard. You know, it's hard to be aware of the impact of sales numbers. It's hard to be aware of the impact of track and and positioning and all of that stuff. Like those are things that I try really hard to shut out when I'm wearing my author hat and they definitely still keep me up at night. But at the end of the day, I think I'd rather know what I'm up against. And so in that sense, it's been invaluable to have that information. Just for the record, uh, I've always uh, envisioned editorial offices to be just like the West Wing. I'm so glad. Yeah, there are walk and talks. <laughs> I've had to run yes. between meetings with my boss through cubicle laden fields. It's, <laughs> it's very dramatic, although slightly less high stakes. <laughs> Lots of uh, dramatic natural lighting and and all of that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Like from from the highest heights, you've got like mostly a lot of Broadway construction, I would say. But <laughs> it's that's, it's it's sort of like being in the White House. <laughs> that's fantastic, um, Emma. One of the questions that I love to ask people, and um, and it's it's kind of a weird question, but uh, but I think you'll appreciate it. Um. I love to hear about the beginnings of things and especially where a story is born. Um, because in, in one moment, Ursa Major did not exist in any form or fashion. And then either a character walked onto the stage of your mind or you started playing the what if game, uh, you know, maybe after reading uh, an, another novel or, or seeing a, a movie or hearing a song and and then you start you know play what if what if something would would have played out like this and then you know invariably characters start to to you know you cast people uh, in your mind and and then in in one form or fashion songs in Ursa Major does exist then and then it's your job as the writer to uh, to kind of excavate uh, you know that and, and dig out that story until it becomes a book that you hold in your hands. Um, so what was the what was the moment that this book was born for you? I love that question. And that reminds me of Stephen King talking about excavating stories and on writing. Right. Um, yeah, I I would say the moment was I had wisps of the story. I knew I wanted to write about this matriarchal family on an island, but I thought it might be contemporary. Um, I knew there was going to be a rock component and I wasn't sure if it was going to be a parent or the main character. I was kind of just researching and kind of routing around. Like, I feel like I'd sort of located the general vicinity of the fossil, but hadn't quite touched down on it yet. And so I was reading Carly Simon's autobiography and she had an offhanded reference to running into James Taylor pre their relationship. And she just sort of in an appositive clause mentioned that he was with his girlfriend of the time, Joni Mitchell. And that was definitely the moment where the game changed. I love both JT and Joni, but they exist in completely separate spheres in my mind, even though they are contemporaries. Um, and I knew that JT and Carly had had a relationship and they have this history on Martha's Vineyard, which was sort of where I was like creatively seeking around in my brain to find some kind of like nugget. And everything I knew about my character already and about her family did not really fit in with Carly, but it fit in really well with a lot of what I knew about Joni. So at that point, I shifted 
and started to think about what that relationship must have been like. And the more I sought to understand it, the less I could find. And it was crazy. Like they, they dated, it was a thing, but everyone has forgotten because JT's marriage to Carly was so high profile and lasted for 10 years. So all of these songs they wrote about each other, like Blue, You Can Close Your Eyes, All I Want, JT Has a Verse in All I Want by Joni, all of these songs are still really popular, but no one really remembers what they're about, at least no one I've spoken to. So the idea of this album that could be timeless, but whose meaning was lost to time just kind of took hold of me. And then from there, it started to write itself. And it was really fun. It was just like being on the best ride. I can't even tell you. So Emma, um, I don't think that you are old enough to have experienced this time and, and the, <laughs> the the explosion of music that was the early seventies. Um, how no, did you? I'm 32, I, so yeah, yeah, I, was, <laughs> I have know, not. I mean, I I was born in '71, and I was alive when a lot of this was going on, but you know, didn't. It wasn't until I was an adult that I really went back and explored the, you know, the the music and the times of of my childhood. Uh, yeah. I, I know very few, you know, four or five year olds who really, you know, understand the depth. <laughs> of um, but you know, w- what did you do to to help you get into this? this time period and the the little nuances that that are that just fill this book that really transports you to to make you feel like that you're there well thank you for the compliment um it's my parents music so that is helpful because I know their time period and I know I love like my I <laughs> I've talked about how I like to be told stories as a child I think I was the most annoying kid because I was constantly just being like tell me tell me tell me tell me tell me so I knew a lot about just what it was like to be around then because I've been researching it since I was born <laughs> in the form of my own family um, and then I I read a lot specifically about female artists at the time like Linda Rodstad Joni obviously Carly Carol King because I wanted to understand what their experiences were. And then the rest was just playing around in the world and really putting myself into that space and anything that I have a little bit of journalism training. Um, I worked in college at Baltimore City Paper for two years doing uh, film reviews. So I know how to fact check myself. And I, I basically took a draft to play and just be like, what would this have been like? Like there's a scene that does not appear in the final book where Jane researches her record contract because I just wanted to understand like what would an uneducated person who is outside of the industry do to try to figure out what these clauses mean. And um, I don't think it's interesting. It wasn't interesting enough to keep in the book, but I found it really interesting. And that kind of just shows like the level to which I was trying to manifest her and be in that world And afterwards, there were things where I was able to kind of go through and highlight and be like, is this an anachronism? What would the phone have looked like? What would the TV have been like? What would, you know, what nail polish would she have used? What magazines existed? How long did a transatlantic flight take? So there's a fair amount of research. And there are parts of the book that definitely draw on more references. Like the opening is very reference heavy. And I had a whole time of that with my copy editors. Like I mentioned Chris Christofferson and it turns out that his first album didn't come out until two months after this fictional folk festival that we had. (laughs) So we kind of fudged things like that a little bit, but for the most part, we were really rigorous about trying to have everything be 
you know, appropriate for its time. And there's a lot that you can find out after the fact if you just ask the right questions. So speaking of being reference heavy, um, how do you balance the the adding references to to bring the reader into the setting um, without just inundating them with little uh, you know facts that that ultimately don't mean anything. Um, how do you, how do you choose the facts that are going to have the most emotional impact, and how do you choose which ones to leave out? That is such a wonderful question because we have all read these books where the writer gets totally carried away with their own research and they are so fascinated by one thing and ultimately they're the only ones that care and you're like, I did not read a whole chapter about this. (laughs) And so I've definitely struggled with that. Um, And I think the thing that you have to do is choose to to really go through your work um, with a dramatic lens. Like what I would say is for me, it was a two-step process, right? Like I wrote every scene I wanted to for this book. If there was like the boring contract scene that I wanted to write, I did it. Just like when you go shopping for a new outfit, you should try on everything you want to try on in the store. And the the exercise of trying things on often makes it easier to eliminate what doesn't work. So I think there's like a three-step process, right? You try you try everything, you let yourself play, then you rest the manuscript. You want to give yourself a break from it so that it's not as hot and that you can be objective when you go back and have to do the necessary work of killing your darlings. And then when you go back and you review it, you really look through the lens of like, is this enhancing the scene? Is this enhancing the drama of the moment? Is this fact carrying any emotional significance? Is this actually going to heighten what we're doing? Or is this just kind of a tangent? And I think it's, it's like any skill, you have to practice it. But once you're able to be rigorous about that, it opens up whole avenues of objectivity and also effectiveness within your own creative sphere. And it makes your facts sing because the truth is if you pair anything with an emotionally heightened stimulus, it becomes more resonant. So you're actually like making your research look even better if you're able to sort of piggyback it onto the stakes of your story. Songs in Ursa Major available everywhere now. When you're hearing this, you can go grab it at your favorite local bookstore. Uh, I think that the world is opening back up and a lot of our bookstores are back in business. Thank God. Um, yeah. <laughs> go support your local bookstore. If if you prefer to shop on Amazon, there's a link uh, in the show notes of this episode where you can grab it from Amazon. Um, also, audiobook. I've not uh, heard the audiobook yet, Emma. Um, have, have you gotten to hear it yet? I know it's brand new. There's a little sample up on Amazon, but I haven't heard the whole thing yet. I cannot wait. Yeah, what, what do you think about having uh, your, your stories translated in that way? Oh, I, I, it's such a privilege to have it have it read. Um, yeah, my narrator, Kristen, is so gifted. And it's, it's you know, to circle back to what we were talking about earlier, I love oral tradition and I love being read to. So this is actually like the ultimate for me. Having an audiobook is is the best. I'm so excited. Also because my dad mostly listens to audiobooks. So now I know he'll actually read it. <laughs> We're going to put links in the show notes as well where you can grab the Audible audiobook. Um, Emma, this has been so much fun chatting. Uh, if people are just discovering you and want to dig into all the great stuff that you're doing, uh, where can they find you online? 
Uh, I have an Instagram. That's probably my platform of choice. It's just at Emma C. Brody. Um, I have a Twitter that I'm starting to get more into, and I have a website, just emmabrody.com. So definitely say hi. I'm looking to make friends. (laughs) Excellent. We'll we'll link that up as well. Uh, Emma, this has been so much fun chatting. Thank you so much for taking time to come on the show. Oh, Hank, thank you so much. This is the best. Love your show. This is so wonderful to be here. Authors, if you're looking for a partner to help ensure that your book is the best it can possibly be, look no farther than Pico's House. Crystal and her staff make a conscious effort to be critical yet courteous. They also strive to make the business side of things run smoothly so that you can rest easy knowing that your manuscript is in capable hands. Whether you need beta reading, developmental editing, a manuscript critique, line editing, copy editing, or proofreading, Pico's House is the one-stop shop for you. Check them out today at picoshouse.com to get started.